Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Cinco de Mayo. Right? Cinco de Mayo. The 5th of 2019. May. That's right. So we're in a celebratory mood. We're getting, excuse me, celebratory mood. <laughs> Almost got carried away. And uh, Who doesn't love a celebratory <laughs> nude? <laughs> I'm sure there's a Mexican. Uh, but not here. Uh, not not now. now. All right. Let's get off to a different subject. So it's been a busy week, as it always is, a busy week. And we were, uh, we went to uh, Cabaret this week. Cabaret, as opposed to theater. We went to... Yeah, a Cabaret performance. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. At, well, at 54 Below. Which is a Cabaret. That's the way the word is used. Right. Yes. But I don't want people to think that we, we went to a performance. No one's thinking that. Of Cabaret. No. 54 Below. We've mentioned 54 Below. Because I know below. you're thinking about Cabaret because you're watching that Fosse Verdon <laughs> show. Yeah, I am. But okay. uh, that, that thing's running out of steam. But in any event, 54 Below which is the uh, cabaret performing uh, venue, which is right next to Studio 54, so it's 8th Avenue. Michael Feinstein's little boat. That's right. And we saw Michael Feinstein, what was it, a million years ago? Or a million years several ago. Several million years ago when he was just a boy uh, performing at the Algonquin. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about Michael Feinstein in the future. But in any event, we've been to 54 Below a few times. We always enjoy it. It's, it, it's probably worth spending 30 seconds on it for those who don't know, but... What you do is you uh, sign up, uh, you get reservations. It costs about the same as a Broadway ticket, generally. and Sometimes uh, more. Sometimes a little bit more. Uh, you buy dinner, but the dinner doesn't cost you any more than dinner at a restaurant would, and it's not bad. You just share a table with another couple, which is fine. Not it's always, but often. often. And you chat them up, and uh, we always meet some interesting people. You don't have to chat them up. But, we, but, but of course, we do. <laughs> we were very big chatters. <laughs> and uh, we had a group who live in a uh, couple of in Long Island City uh, who comes in regularly, have been to 54 below more times than we have been. And uh, they were enthusiasts, and we're enthusiasts too. And we saw uh, what I would think fairly say is one of the more high-profile excuse me, acts that you see if you look at the calendar for 54 Below, and that is a duo, namely Norbert Leo Butts, performing with Sherry Renee Scott. Now, um, they performed together. They've obviously performed separately before. They both, let's just, should we spend a minute as to who they are and what they've been in? Go ahead. Tell me who they are. Well, <clears throat> Sherry Renee Scott, we had seen in a show before, right, which is Everyday Rapture, which is her one-woman show some years ago. Uh, you know, she's her bona fides in terms of Broadway. She performs, you know, some years ago in the last five years. Um, then, well, I don't know if I'm going to give it an exact order. She was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, she was in Aida. She was in, uh, The Little Mermaid. She played Ursula. She often plays the villain, uh, strangely enough. And she was in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Uh, She's uh, she's very good. She's a very good singer. Uh, she's uh, turns out she now has developed a music company. Uh, she's one of the producers of. It's called Shishkaboom, uh, whose mission is to sort of bring together Broadway with more pop music sensibilities. They happen to produce a lot of Broadway albums. They produced um, uh, In the Heights and a few others. So she's an executive at this point. Uh, she's from Kentucky. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's a pro. Uh, she was performing with Norbert Leo Butts, and uh, he too started in the last five years, and that's part of the story we'll get back to in a minute. Uh, he was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with Sherry Renee Scott. He was in Catch Me If You Can. He was in, uh, Big Fish. Um, and 
Actually, um, he's won the Tony for Best Actor in a Musical twice. Twice for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Catch Me If You Can. And that's a big deal. Right. I mean, I was looking that up. There's only one person who's on that level who exists today, and that's Nathan Lane. And he hasn't won one of those for a long time. So maybe Norbert Leo Butts is a little bit under the radar. Uh, but he's a great talent. But he was in uh, My Fair Lady this year. And he, I, I should have met him. He was in My Fair Lady this year. So as the father, as the father, yeah, as of, uh, the, Eliza, the so-called Stanley Holloway part. Right, Get I'm me getting married. Church on yes. time. I'm getting married in the morning. There yeah. you go. Uh, so he's a tremendous talent. They're both great talents, and it was kind of interesting in that they had put this uh, together. It was almost like a little play. They had sort of a running dialogue based on their relationship together. Again, as I mentioned, they were both in uh, the last five years. They're both in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. They have a history together. Uh, they've known each other 20, 25 so years. they a little sort Sto- of story. narrative. Right. And whether that was 100% true, I don't know. Whether it was creative, I don't know. But it had to do with some kind I of... Think it, I'm sure it was enhanced. It must have been. I mean, actually, they, you know, I should have met, they even met in Rent before that. But it was based on their going, getting in and out of each other's lives, some sexual tension between them, their failed relationships with others. Uh, but... A, which is not to say it was totally serious. It just gave some structure to the whole evening and the various right. songs they did. And they had great banter together. They've known each other forever. They're kidding around together. And they're both tremendous talents. What surprised me, at least, was that almost all the music uh, was, I would call, pop or rock music as opposed to uh, Broadway music. They weren't reprising their, you know, showstoppers from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's not what they were doing. They were doing from Rent. Right. But they were doing more stuff that wasn't any show stuff at all. They were right. doing, I mean, he did a show, he did a song from the last five years. But, uh, it was more, um, you know, pretty, uh, almost New Orleans jazz type at one point. It was, it was, uh, pretty energetic. So, uh, and some of it was pretty modern music. At one point, she was doing a number from Fleetwood Mac, basically. Right. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed it a great deal. And it was, but it was an interesting creative process, really, that they put that together. It wasn't, it was no small thing. They were very casual about it, but I don't think they're casual at all. He's, he's done, he's performed at 54 Below a couple of times. He has done some CDs based on his 54 Below performances, which I didn't realize. And he has a couple of record albums out, and they're all rock music oriented. They're really not show music oriented. So this is what he's interested in. And I think that's what you see in Cabaret. If you get, if you, folks get a chance to do what they really want to do. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think? Well, it was a good show. Yeah. All right, it was a good show, and I I am charmed by this notion of up close and personal. Right. You know, which is, we have just come to sort of lately, late in our lives. Right. And uh, that is always intriguing. Um, but you know what? To be honest, in terms of the music, you know, I just love. Norbert Leo Butts sort of standard character. Yeah. You know, that sort of smart, alecky guy, um, a little bit of a wiseacre. Yeah. And uh, I love that. I love his Broadway voice, that sort of nasal mm-hmm. um, kind of voice. And I was disappointed not to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was disappointing. Um, on the other hand, I am not a fan of Sherry Renee Scott. I did not like Everyday Rapture. And here I was quite charmed by her. She was funny. She was adult. Uh, she had she had kind of an adorable costume. She was wearing um, 
sequin hot pants mm-hmm. with a 54 below t-shirt yeah. and a little jacket. And I just found her completely engaging. Mm-hmm. So I did enjoy the show. It was not what I was expecting. Right. And I'm, I, I, I can just imagine them crafting this show and say, well, nobody's going to be expecting this. Right. You know, in the sort of older, uh, you know, cabaret crowd that you usually see at 54 Below. Uh, so, um, you know, it was fun. But I would still love to hear him. I have never seen him really in a big part on stage. Yeah. And I would love to see that. Yeah. I well, guess. look, I because uh, I love his voice. I love yeah. his, that attitude. Yeah. Actually, I agree with you. I mean, I enjoy the show a great deal. Uh, and I would the choice of music wouldn't have been my choice of music. Notwithstanding, that's what he wants to sing. Uh, it was fine, but to me, it didn't really distinguish his voice as much as some other stuff he could have done. And he's done some absolutely show-topping, show-stopping stuff. And I'm yeah. thinking of and cast me if you can. He did a number called. Uh, you know, you know, it's it ain't worth uh, whatever if you don't obey the rules. And it's just throwing a dance number. And he's playing an FBI guy, and it brought the house down. But it's a pattern number. That's what he's famous for: pattern numbers, fast talking, rhythmic, highly energetic yeah. Broadway type stuff. Um, well, I'll and, tell you, they were energetic in this uh, performance. Yeah, well, that's for they sure. were sweating bullets. Yeah, they were, <laughs> I mean, they listen, were working hard. But, you know, that's one of the great things of Gary. It's not necessarily exactly what you'd expect. Sometimes it's going to be unexpected. But, you know, the immediacy of it, the fact that performers are right there, uh, the crowd loved it. Uh, certainly worth going to. Really enjoyed it a yeah, great deal. Yeah, we had a great time. Yeah. And, and we're going out again this week. Yes, we are. Because <laughs> it's Encore's time. <laughs> this is your, that's the sound. I'm going out with my husband. Sounds good. Well, it's just encores. You know, I married an angel. Well, that was the last time. Yeah. yeah that that was people, not, people are going to take you seriously. It was and not this, my favorite. Yeah, it wasn't okay. good. So, um, this is called High Button Shoes. Again, so, Encores is the so revival. I'm very nervous. I'm very nervous. If yeah. it's another um, disappointment. Yeah. It's uh, a 1947 musical about a couple of guys, I guess you told me, who were sort of on the lam or something. from no, the, they're, they're con men. It's some kind of... Jersey kind of road trip it's, musical. It's, 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 it's the original Jersey Boys, really, yeah. when you think about it. On the way to Atlantic City or but something, it is, I don't know. It is a Jules Stein musical. It's an early musical, 1947. Jules Stein, of course, uh, Funny Girl, and uh, to your heart, uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Right. So how bad can it be there? It's Jules right. Stein. How bad can it be? And so, uh, we'll, so see. we'll see. I mean, look, we normally... Michael Yuri is in it. Yeah. He's we've never seen funny. Michael Yuri, yeah. right? He was in the, um, oh, the reprise of something just recently. I can't remember what it was. Um, but he's, he's a big name in Broadway now. And, um, you know, uh, we normally love encores. Uh, so we'll see. Okay, we'll let's see. not dwell on everything we don't know. Yes. Well, but but you got to buy tickets now because the next time we're we're going to be here, it'll be over. It's just a weekend set of performances. Uh, if you're interested, <laughs> if you're interested, for those listeners who are dialing up the podcast on a timely basis, exactly right. If you're listening to this in 2020, forget you know, it. Too late. You missed it. Uh, speaking of things that uh, are timely, the Kentucky Derby. So we, we, we should explain. We, we watch the Kentucky Derby. We often try to watch the Kentucky Derby. We said we I have, don't know why. We said we it's have, not like I'm a horse racing fan. We have our mint juleps. And, uh, we do not have mint, we mint juleps. You're in there with the juleps and with the mints making the mint juleps. Although you do often wear your bonnet while you're watching it. <laughs> That's good. Then. Uh, yeah, we're in, the, we're in the mode. We're in the mood. 
We even watched the pregame. And uh, they bring the horses down. And, and yesterday it was in the pouring, pouring rain. You had to feel bad for all those folks, even the horses to some degree. Uh, and they had a race uh, which has become controversial. As you may have heard by now, if you follow horse racing in the least or read a newspaper, uh, it is a situation in which a horse named Maximum Security crossed the finish line first. And they started with the storylines and heartfelt uh, interviews with a trainer who hadn't won too much, and now he had uh, his big victory and the jockey, uh, etc. And, and then, the trainer immediately called his dad. Right, called his dad. Because his brother had won it, actually. That's his right, was Marty Jones 15 years ago, yeah. Uh, so it was all a big very emotional, emotional thing. And then, and the young jockey, very emotional, very right. ecstatic. It's his dream, he, you know, yeah. he's from mm. a foreign country, and now he's on the big stage. And then disaster strikes. Word comes in that an objection has been filed from uh, the jockey of the horse that came in second uh, named Country House. And it's an interesting situation. Actually, it turned out, as, as it evolved, a couple of objections came, not just from that jockey. But, but they were all horses that didn't figure, the other horses didn't figure in anything. They were in the mix toward the end, but they weren't near the front at the very end. And so the most interesting objection was from Country House, who came in second. And the objection stemmed from the fact as they turned for home, uh, maximum security uh, veered to the outside to some degree. Went from the like they call it lane two to lane four. They're not really strictly lanes; it's just a way to think about it. And by veering out, he almost collided with a couple of horses behind him, and uh, that kind of hustle and bustle. And kind that's of, bad behavior. Yes, that, that put off country house. It was a little bit. Are outside. you sure he just didn't slip? I mean, it was muddy out it, there. He probably did slip. They said he had, he actually leapt over a puddle. Is what got it going, and it was crowd uh, noise. It was an impossible situation, but but here's the, the so the thing so the, we're sitting there we're watching everybody else twenty two minutes while the judges figure out whether they're going to take down maximum security and give it to country house or, or keep it the way it was and they ultimately decide that the objection stands they take down maximum security they have a new winner country house a sixty nine to one shot which nobody sixty nine I thought it was sixty five sixty five sixty nine whatever the point is that nobody nobody picked that horse. To win the race, zero people. Dang! If, yes. only, if only, if only we had picked if, that horse, we'd, we'd be sitting pretty. Uh, right. But the point is, it, it's a political discussion now, and of course Trump is weighed in. But putting aside what Trump said, it is kind of interesting because there are two ways to looking at it. Uh, there's probably only one. But what did Trump say? Trump says it was it should have never happened. They should have never taken the horse down. He was the best horse. And this was a PC Trump, thing to do. Trump had money on that horse. <laughs> That's the answer. Trump had money. That's an easy one. Maximum security. So <laughs> we'll stop with that. A no-brainer. <laughs> but here's the thing. I mean, there are two ways to look at it. And there's probably only one, but there's two ways if you don't look at the rules. And uh, fortunately, we were blessed with broadcasters who had, didn't realize there were rules. So they were willing to talk about things with no basis. The initial reaction of the broadcasters was, well, gee, he would have won anyway. What's the big deal? Uh, given the maximum security didn't affect the outcome because the slipping and sliding had to do with horses who weren't really pressing for the lead uh, by the end of it. And uh, it turns out, though, I think that if you look at the rules, it doesn't work that way. If the rules don't say, don't take the horse down, if it, you know he's the best horse, the best horse ought to be rewarded. That's not what the rules say. What the rules say is if you do something wrong, uh, regardless of the horse that you happen to foul, whether he was coming in second or fourth or eighth, uh, then you are taken down. That's disqualified. What, disqualified. And that's what happened. Right. And if you just look at the rules that way, uh, 
it's kind of not much to argue about, not much debate. Let's just face it. What? Because maximum security got disqualified, your horse. My horse. Who would have been in fourth place moved, moved up, up to third, Tacitus. Not only that, so but, but he, not only that, but Tacitus was trained by the same trainer as the as the horse as the trainer for Country House, the same guy, Bill Mott. So, so I pretty that guy much is rolling in dough now. My, my point is, I pretty much picked the winner right. by picking the horse that comes in third. <laughs> How unusual for you! And, and so I'm on a roll, and uh, but you know this is going to be widely debated i can see it both ways but i think uh, it's nice to know the rules and if you know the rules i think it's probably not that close a case it, it was a um, three uh, stewards vote it was three nothing in favor of disqualification they refused to give any interviews afterwards but you'll be interested to know well the new york times had a headline today about that was a very brave and correct decision usa today came out and said uh, maximum security was robbed it's an awful thing and it's it's it's, good. it's another reason why horse racing is going down the tubes so i think people are going to fight about it all right interesting all right we just wanted to uh say a few words about nba basketball uh and for that we're bringing in our nba specialist the granger abuhoff who knows far more about the nba than even tamson does so uh, is this about the championship thing? Is yes, the it's the playoffs. Oh, okay. And, and right. NBA stands for National Basketball Association. No, I know what I know what that is, but <laughs> the, you know, some people listen. Or somebody's going to listen to this uh, another time of year. They won't know the context. All right, so here we but go. Right the now, end. playoffs are going on. Playoffs are going on, and there's yeah. one to me. To me, the biggest story in the playoffs is the Greek freak, and the Greek freak is not a pejorative term. Don't get me wrong, uh, but he does have a name, and his name Granger is. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, that sounds right. And he is this Greek youth who came uh, out of, he's Nigerian, or his family's Nigerian, and he grew up uh, in Greece. And the Times has an interesting piece about how that puts you in sort of the edge of uh, Greek society, honestly, and it was in a very sort of destitute area. But the basketball first, Granger. Uh, am I wrong? I mean, is the Greek freak not dominating the playoffs as in the way he also dominated the regular season? Who does he play for? He plays for the Bucks, and he's doing really well this playoffs. Um, I think that you have to put him up with a you know, group of the best players in the playoffs right now. Probably Kevin Durant is playing a little bit better, but no one else is playing better than the Greek Freak. And he is a 24-year-old who is, I'll say, 6'11", uh, and is called the Greek Freak because of his athletic skills are off the charts. He jumps like crazy. He dunks. He goes to the basket. He shoots threes once in a while. He dribbles with both hands. Am I exaggerating? Yeah, so statistically, he's actually very similar to Shaq in certain ways because he's such a good finisher around the rim. Right. But unlike Shaq, he's a thin guy who like dribbles down fast breaks. He does a little bit of posting up, but is much more playing in transition, driving to the basket. So some parts of him are like a center, some parts of him are like a point guard. And he's very good defensively, too. And he's taken over a couple of these playoff games. I mean, the playoffs are where it matters in the NBA. Uh, Boston won the first game in their series, but the next two were won by the Bucks because this guy just got it going in the third quarter and they have no answer for them, right? Yeah, the Bucks' strategy when things get tough is Giannis, go to the basket, everyone else is a shooter. And, uh, you know, that it mainly works because they can't stop him. The main thing that happened with him in this series so far is that Al Horford, um, who's always a defensive specialist this time of year, has been pretty good shutting him down. Unless they call Al Horford for fouls. Yeah. And that's kind of what's deciding the series. Well, yeah, Al Horford's not nearly as athletic as him. I was surprised that he blocked his shot in the first game. But uh, I, he can't keep that up. 
Yeah, well, Al Hor- Horford knows where he's going now, so he'll back up to the basket. Yeah. And that's the one thing that Giannis doesn't have is a super reliable jump shot. But he doesn't need it. He's so good at finishing. He's so athletic. He's so determined and coordinated that he doesn't need the jump shot yet. Well, the, I'm sorry, what? Is it, so where did he learn to play basketball? Well, that's the strange thing. So the time story is that uh, this fellow, Giannis, uh, grows up uh, in Greece. Uh, and he's on the margins of society. Uh, his family has trouble eking out a living at all. He's on the street. They quote various friends. He was always hungry, looking for food. Uh, here's one quote. He didn't have anything. He had one pair of shoes he had to share with his brothers. And this is even as a young teenager. This is you know, not as a four-year-old. And he is spotted by a youth coach whose name is Spiros Velianatis. And Spiros Velianatis is, you know, uh, considered a fellow who's capable of developing talent, but it's in, in Greek amateur basketball in the lower middle levels. He walks the neighborhoods of Greece and he spots this kid, namely Giannis, playing tags with his brothers. And he says to himself, boy, this kid can really change direction when he plays tag. That's how he spots him. And I go, what? And he looks at him and he says he's got big hands. Uh, maybe he'll, he'll probably grow into them, even though he's not very tall right now. He's certainly not very strong. But he's so stunned by his physical ability at tag that according to the New York Times article, he starts his own little internal dialogue with God about, I had a discussion with God in this moment, call me crazy, but this is the way I felt. Father, and I seen correctly, uh, you know, how did I get this great talent? And he starts training him like mad. And this is his teenager. And at the age of 19, he's picked the 15th pick in the first round of the NBA. And now he's 24 and he's the top player in the league. I, it is a bizarre, it's like a Disney movie. It, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm excited about the Greek, but I'm also excited about this youth coach, Spiros. <laughs> <laughs> Either he has a good eye or really good connections. Yeah, I, I don't... Well, with the head coach. Look, of course the Times... You know who I mean. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Look, the Times already is upset that the money changed hands because... He got a special job for uh, Giannis's parents, and is that really kosher? And somebody pulls the guys and the, the reporter aside, said it's Greece. Okay, relax. Uh, we don't don't worry about it. Well, that seems like against what uh, the Times would think. I'm glad they got some money out of it. Yeah, Nigerians really have a tough time over there. Well, that, in the article. and that is a main point of the story. So he comes back, and they go into all the details about his very destitute upbringing, including interviews with a fellow who owned the little cafe across the way from the basketball court, who when these these Nigerian youths would come by before they played ball. They were all hungry. He gave them all sandwiches. And sure enough, last year, uh, Giannis came back and visited his old hometown. And what's the first place he visits? The cafe. And he brings the guy his uh, his uniform from the All-Star game for the NBA. Oh, that's nice. And now it's on well, the Well, this is a heartwarming story. Yeah. And it's and it's so strange. When you think about what American basketball used to go through, you know, they got to go to the right high school. they got to be in AAU. God, you know, God willing, they get coached by Mike Krzyzewski, and then maybe they go in the first round of the draft because they have to learn all these skills. This kid's playing tag. Right. right. All right. So, kids, get out there. Play some tag. You might end up in the NBA. All right. Well, thank you, Granger. No problem. Okie doke. Uh, this next, next segment is uh, about uh, something going on at Smith College. So I want to dedicate this segment to the Ferguson girls, Bobby, Sandy, and Nancy, my three favorite uh, Smith alums. All right. Uh, You know, uh, Nancy was my uh, best friend in high school, 
And she went to Smith, as did her mother and her sister. And, uh, of course, Julia Child went to Smith, too. But anyway, um, uh, when I was going to Princeton, you know, Princeton was not a co-ed school, right? It was basically a men's school right. letting women in, hmm. okay? So I loved to visit Nancy at Smith College. Yeah. You know, they didn't live in dorms. They lived in houses. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, well, they were, which were essentially dorms. It's in North But they Hampton, had a house right? sensibility. Yeah. You could go down to breakfast in your jammies. Really? And they had flowers on the china. Yeah, it sounds and, like a uh, women's And it was college, all very right? yeah. civilized. Yeah, okay. And plus, Northampton was a really cute college town. Princeton is a cute town, not a cute college town. It doesn't have any funky, creative restaurants or you know shops the way college towns often do so i'm i'm a fan of smith college anyway big article about uh clothes uh not not a surprise i guess the clothes they wore this is the title of this article in the new york times this week just rags or valuable And it's an article written by Vanessa Friedman, and it's about a clothing collection at Smith College. Now, this is maintained by a professor, Catherine Smith, who goes by the name of Kiki. Mm. And uh, I think she actually went to Smith as well. Yeah, graduate of the college and a costume designer and a professor of theater. Uh And so she gets to Smith in the 70s, and she's going through... The um, their costumes for theater productions, mm-hmm. and she's realizing that they're not all like you know big uh, fancy to dos that one would wear in a Shakespeare production, but uh, some of them are just old clothes uh, and uh, kind of interesting and kind of valuable, sort of historical garments uh, donated by alums, and so she begins to uh, take care of them. And realize uh, that they shouldn't all be in one giant pile for putting on a play. And uh, she begins to curate them, take care of them, uh, you know, and, you know, um, store them somewhat properly, etc. Add to the collection. Other alums send in additions and uh, she buys things. And what's different about this collection is it's... To some extent, everyday attire. So at this point, they have about 3,000 items, Mm -hmm. accessories and clothing. And uh, these are not high-end designer attire like you find in the Metropolitan Costume Institute, all right, or in the FIT collection in New York. They're not historically significant. They're not aesthetically significant. But they're significant in that they kind of reveal the lives of women uh, through the clothing they wore. And so the question is now, what do you do to properly maintain these objects? You need, uh, well, Kiki Smith estimates you need a facility um, with climate control, et cetera, and so forth, they would probably cost about $7 million. Right. bucks. And plus you need some kind of curator. She's not going to be there forever. She's 69 now. She doesn't want to retire until these things are properly taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so to endow a position of curator would be probably another $3 million. So you need $10 million bucks to do this. 
The powers that be at, Prince, at uh, Smith say it's not really on their radar hmm. to do this. Uh, and uh, Kiki made a presentation a few years ago uh, to uh, the uh, committees that were doing kind of a master plan for what happens next at Smith, including a renovation of their library. And she proposed including some kind of facility in the renovated library, and uh, nobody bought it. So that's kind of too bad. The, um, the clothing is used by people, and it's simple things. It's things like aprons, uh, you know, house dresses, uh, shoes that people wore, uh, you know, various uh, um, just day-to-day objects from, you know, a, real, a pretty good uh, range of uh, period um, from the 19th century uh, up to the present. And uh, they're kind of anthropological objects. Uh, classes studying history or classes studying literature, even classes studying mathematics have, uh, you know, utilized uh, the uh, pieces from the collection to learn from. It brings students well, look, it's, you know, in contact, in, you know, in close contact. They've got to decide they want to spend the money or not. I mean, it's really what it comes down to. But it, but it's tricky. It's yeah. tricky because it's not sexy. Yeah. The big money is going to it's science, a, engineering. It's, it's right? not sexy. For a woman's school to say, <laughs> we want to save old dresses right. seems right. a little it's, bit... It's worse than it's not sexy. It's a little retro. It's, it's a little bit like clothes are important. And, 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 and that's uh, running up, up against the tide, I think. So uh, Kiki Smith says it would take some guts. Yeah. So, but, but here's hoping somebody uh, steps up to do this because that's where you learn about life, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, having these uh, gala costumes mm-hmm. uh, that only the 1% or, or the half a percent wore uh, is not going to tell anybody about women's life in uh, the 20th century, the 19th century, the 21st century. Yeah. Okay. Um, that would be like, uh, you know, saving Beyonce's clothes. What does that really tell you about uh, people? Um, so um, we'll see. Another thing you pointed out to me is there's a new Hamilton exhibition. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and in, it's just been... Uh, it's in Chicago. It's in Chicago. Chicago, apparently, more people have seen Hamilton in Chicago than in, than New, in York, New York. Which means they have a bigger theater there. But it's, let's assume it's big there. It's big in Chicago. So they put together this exhibition to kind of uh, straighten out uh, people about the actual history. Because well, it turns out that not everything in the musical is 100% accurate. Right. And um, Lee, um, Lin-Manuel right. Miranda is open about that. Yeah. Uh, he says, you know, to some extent... I did make stuff up. Right. Okay. Uh, Newsflash, don't go to Evita thinking you can pass a test on uh, Argentinian uh, political history. Okay. Um, That's not it. And so they put together an exhibition. It costs $13.5 million to put together. It's multimedia. It's got all kinds of fun things going on in it. Um, 
by the way, that costs more than putting together the original musical. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so the question is... Uh, but they'll make their money. They're charging $38 or something for admission. Uh, you know, it's a money-making venture. And they say that uh, Joanne Freeman, a professor of history, yeah. that the, from, I think, oh, Yale, yeah, uh, that they have as a consultant working on it, says there, there are a couple ways you can look at these things. Yeah. You can look at the musical and say, the history isn't accurate, you know, uh, that's bad. I hate it for that reason. Or you can look at it and say, all right, everything's not accurate in this musical. Let me tell you. Let me, you know, explain it yeah. to you. And uh, uh, really, people have gotten whipped up in a frenzy yeah. about Hamilton. It has never happened before. Yeah, and I'm sure so the exhibit is take advantage of it's it, kind of high tech and interactive. I'm sure it's worth Listen, the $38. If you can make money yeah. teaching history... It's, it's a, Even if it's in this way, yeah. Well, why that's not? well, that's the story. Why not? You can make money teaching history because right. you don't make his money teaching art history. Okay. I'll tell you that. Well, you never know. You need the right musical. Uh, Gino Marchetti died. So who's Gino Marchetti? Uh, yeah, who is Gino Marchetti? Gino Marchetti uh, was, if you would ask people, in 1965, 1963, who was the greatest defensive football player of all time? The answer was Gino Marchetti if not the greatest football player of all time. So a couple of years have passed since then. But uh, Marchetti, uh, it's, it's an interesting story. He was in the Battle of the Bulls. He came back from the Army. He was going to attend bar with his uh, dad. And uh, he's a very big guy. So someone uh, saw him on a racetrack, who's associated with Modesto Junior College, got him to go there to play football. The next thing you know, he's in the uh, National Football League, which is emerging in the 1950s, and he becomes a stalwart of the great Baltimore Colt teams, and he plays in what was considered for many years the greatest football game of all time, the 1958 championship between the Baltimore Colts and the New York football giants, which went to overtime, made Johnny Unitas a household name, and actually saved the NFL from oblivion because it was on the verge of perhaps going under at the time. He made the critical tackle of Frank Gifford, a name that you know, Tamsin, and yep. he broke his leg on that play. Ooh. Watched the rest of the game from the sideline. Uh, it was a pretty serious broken leg, but it's what gave them the opportunity, gave the Colts the opportunity to come back and win the game in overtime. Um, and uh, when he retired, um, he started um, Geno's, which you might be familiar with. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course Fast you are. food. Exactly. That's Gino Marchetti. I didn't know that. I know you didn't know that. That's a revelation. Yes. So that was, and he was one of the first guys to get into something that was a huge moneymaker. After he got out, he he sold the chain ultimately to the Marriott Corporation for $48.6 million. He had 450 restaurants. A lot of those ended up becoming Roy Rogers restaurants. That's how Roy Rogers began. And uh, that's where the Gino and, and Gino's comes from, from Gino Marchetti. Uh, uh, and after the 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 game, he he, he they quoted asked him at the end of his career, probably within the last few years, about the great game in '58, and he said that game made a tremendous difference. It made us well known. It allowed me to open the restaurants. He and then the, the time says he might have added that he had one more reminder of that game. After being injured, he always walked with a limp. I was going to say yeah yeah, but in any event, Gino Marchetti was a huge name. All right. News to me. Yeah. Interesting news. Uh, also passing away this week was Doreen Spooner, 
you may not know that name, but uh, she was the first woman to become a full-time staff photographer for a British national newspaper. Um, so she uh, was... Uh, a great photographer. Her real claimed, one of her great claims to fame was a picture of the two women involved in that sex scandal um, trial of uh, John Profumo, yeah. the British uh, Secretary of State uh, for War. Um, Brought and, down the government in the Great Britain. And right. You and see the photo in the Times right, of the two she women. Right, takes a photo of two of the women involved. She snuck uh, in. She yeah. snuck in and got the big photo. But she has a lot of big photos. I mean, yes, she's, she's, yes. And she's a lot of funny things to say. Yes, she did. And um, she actually, uh, her father gives her a um, cheap little camera when she's about eight years old. Yeah. And uh, the rest is history. She gets hooked on photography. And she kind of has to fight her way through, um, obviously. But this is what she says about it. Um, she said, uh, um, you cannot expect the men to turn around and say, after you, dear. It's a competitive wor world, and you are out there competing, and the photographer's sex makes not an atom of difference. Don't put on the weaker sex act. It will not work. Still, she said, I like to think I played a small part in changing attitudes, never waving a feminist flag just by getting on with my job. Yeah. And, you know, it, when she first gets photo credits... In the paper she works for, they it reads, By Camera Girl Doreen Spooner. <laughs> but she learned to like that. She called herself Camera Girl after a while. But Well, uh, well but uh, it, it did rankle her uh, yeah. at first. And um, she, she you know, took many uh, fun, interesting, significant uh, photographs, including quite a few photographs of Twiggy. Remember Twiggy? Yes, she said you can't uh, take a bad picture of Twiggy. Right, uh, which is uh, interesting. Her real name was Leslie Lawson. Uh, um, uh, well, Twiggy's so. still around. And but I also like the bit at the end because she got uh, the assignment of taking what, what shall we call well, them racy photographs? The, yes, she's working for the Sun yeah. in the 1970s. She actually retires before the whole digital right. uh, revolution, but she's working for Rupert Murdoch's Sun. Right. And uh, on uh, I guess it is page three, they have topless photos. Right. And so she got the assignment of taking uh, these pictures as well. And uh, the models uh, actually said they didn't really mind a great posing there. for her. You never mind getting your kit off for Doreen, says one. It's like undressing in front of your granny. Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah, it was, it, she's a pip. She was, it was a funny, it's a funny old bit, but she obviously accomplished a great deal. Uh, so you had uh, uh, a book. For, oh, you've been reading some book. You've been, you yeah, actually yeah. are following through on a recommendation, which yeah, is nice. Yeah, I did just read that book, uh, The Beneficiary, uh, by Janie Scott. And you like it. I did like it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure everyone would like it. Yeah. Um, it's the story of, uh, you know, a mainline Philadelphia mm -hmm. dynasty mm -hmm. and their estate. Mm -hmm. And the main character is uh, Jenny Scott's father, Robert Montgomery Scott, who, um, I guess, did a lot of, did a lot of, well, he was a lawyer. He ends up president of uh, the Philadelphia Museum right. of Fine Arts. And it's his story. 
but it resonated with me from being in the Philadelphia area. Also, there were certain connections with uh, the Tyler family. And, you know, my beloved Bucks County Community College is on the estate, right. the Tyler estate. So we're, there were lots of uh, things that made sense to me in this book but this, and kind of illuminated. Yeah. Uh, but but the story is, is the revelations were to the the woman who writes it. But she didn't understand her father without reading well, his he journals. Was, he was basically a socialite. But, but at the same ways. time, he was a manic depressive. And a manic he was a depressive to- and tremendous alcoholic. Which really she, d- dies. Much of, of which she learned about by reading his, his journal. Well, she knew he was an alcoholic, but yeah. she didn't know. Um, the depths of well, his I assume feelings a, about that yeah. and, you know, s- some of the things he got into. So right. it's uh, finding his journals, which he told her uh, he would leave to her, but he didn't tell her where they were. <laughs> she has, she takes actually years to find them, really? but eventually does. So it's an interesting picture of that life. Um, and uh, again, it, you know, supposedly her gr- is it her great grandmother was the uh, model for, for the Philadelphia Hepburn story? Yeah, character in, in the, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia story. story. Right. So there, it's it was it was interesting. It was a fun read, yeah. but uh, again, you know, not perhaps for everybody unless you're really interested in that, learning that about that. So and also, an article in the Wall Street Journal: How eating more of what you love can make you healthier. Mm-hmm. And really, it's the story of prebiotics. Mm. So you and I happen to be talking about this probiotics. weekend about probiotics, this is like yogurt and stuff. Yogurt, like Yogurt, you know things that, things that encourage that you know encourage beneficial bacteria mm. in your gut. Turns out we need bacteria uh, in our systems to make us healthier. Right. And so prebiotics feed. The probiotics. Right. But but the headline is, so, you eat a complete diet, eat a wide range of foods. You don't just eat one food. You need a diversity right. so Some, that all these things Whether it's work pre together. or it's pro, if you get the balance. And the diet, main thing is it. it needs to be complex. You need fiber. Yeah. Um, and so do that. Eat more vegetables. Eat more vegetables, right. Haven't we heard that before? I think so. But eat every, eat every balanced diet even more than eat more vegetables. All right. So here we go. We just have a couple more obituaries. Then you can go. Uh, Red Kelly. Red Kelly was a great hockey player. Died at the age of 91. Won eight Stanley Cups. Uh, four Stanley Cups with Detroit. Four Stanley Cups with Toronto. Um, he was one of the first what are so-called offensive defensemen. Uh, this, you as a defense person in hockey will relate to this, Tamsin. In other words, he wasn't uh, the kind that just sat back. Although I think of you as a, def- a defensive defense person, but he would leave. offensive defense. He was an offensive defenseman. You, would- you, think, you think I was defensive? Yeah. No? You oh. Was- oh, excuse me. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you, did you not watch <laughs> I did not one wonderful goal? <laughs> I did not understand your game. Okay. Well, let's talk about that offline. In any event, uh, he was just an outstanding hockey player and is well-known and well-respected. What was interesting to me about this is that uh, after all his accomplishments, his eighth Stanley Cup, he, he was going for his ninth Stanley Cup, and it turns out he was incredibly superstitious, as athletes can be. He's on the Toronto Maple Leafs. They're playing the Philadelphia Flyers. This is 1976. This isn't a million years ago. And uh, he uh, spreads throughout the locker room uh, pyramids to create pyramid power. Because so that the pyramid shape might capture and transmit an energy 
force to those in its vicinity. In the 70s, pyramids were big. So that was his... They were actually... People um, would actually put them under their beds as a marital aid. Mm. Okay. So here's the thing. All right. You might think, there you go. He's all set for the ninth Stanley Cup. And they've tried it. And it turns out it didn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Because they played the Philadelphia Flyers. And when they played the Flyers in Philadelphia, they would play a recording of Kate Smith singing God Bless America. And that would overwhelm the pyramid power. And this really? and, the, and the series This is like monotheism uh, against polytheism. All I can tell you okay. all I can tell you is that the Stanley Cup that year went to the Philadelphia Flyers, not Toronto. Okay. I'm gonna overlook that remark about my offensive uh, <laughs> oh, qualities because I know you're bereft about your beloved islanders uh, having uh, I appreciate been, it. You know, shut right. out. So here's the main obituary we're gonna close with. Go ahead, Ken. Joe Sullivan Lesser. And uh, a singer who preserved Broadway legacy. So Joe Lesser was married to Frank Lesser. Right. And uh, you know Frank Lesser. Yes, I do. Uh, most happy fella, guys and dolls. How uh, to succeed in business yeah. without really trying, yes. etc. And uh, so she, um, she met Frank when she starred in Most Happy Fella. Right. Okay. In uh, around 1956. Mm-hmm. All right. It's actually, as I understand it, it was Frank's first wife who introduces them. Oh, well, I'm glad we okay. got that. Yes. And you know his first wife. Who is his first Lynn wife? Lynn Garland. Hmm. No, do I? We talked about her earlier this year because Frank wrote Baby It's Cold Outside oh, that's as a right. party song. And they sang it for together. Him and oh, Lynn that's, to right. Sing. that's right. I forgot that. And she is upset when he actually sells it and gets money. <laughs> All and, right. Okay. You know, let other people record it. She said, That was our song, Frank. Yeah. Our right. song. Um, is... But anyway, so they, um, she, I guess. Uh, Joe and Frank fall in love. They're both married. He, she gives him an ultimatum, yeah. you know, uh, be divorced, marry me by, you know, such and such a date, 1959, or forget it, I'm out of here. She gives him an exact date, like August 1 or something? Um, well, May 1. And they married two May days one. before the deadline. Right, okay. But here, here's what I love about that. What? That's the story of Guys and Dolls. So Adeline, right, and Nathan Detroit, she says to him, we have to get married. She gives him a deadline to get married in Guys and Dolls. It's the same exact thing. Well, I guess if it works for Adelaide, well, I, I guess it could work for Joe. I think it worked the other way. I think. When did Guys and Dolls? I have to believe that this happened first and then he put it into Guys and Dolls. We'll, we'll figure it out. No, but it can't be. It was after? Guys and Dolls, well, Guys and Dolls must have been before 1959. Yeah, I guess it was. Okay, yeah. we can Google this in a nanosecond, but uh, we're not going it's to. It's too much of a right coincidence, now. though. Okay. A lot was going on at this time. Um, anyway, so that's all. Uh, that's all very uh, interesting. Uh, anything else you want to say? Oh, well, well, I like. Know, you know what I like about her? What worked her way through Columbia University, working at Lord and Taylor. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Listen, there were a lot of things that strange about her. I mean, she put, had to put. She decided to put her career aside. She was supposedly an excellent singer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then uh, she puts her career aside because he expects her to be home to make dinner. It wasn't appropriate right. for her to perform. Right. Frank didn't want to come home at night to an empty house. So she's raising the kids. He died at a very young age at 59. He was 17 years older than her. She's 42. She's young. 
by today's standards. So she actually starts performing. But not for a while. Yeah, but eventually she does. But it doesn't occur to her right away. I mean, I don't understand it, but eventually she does. Well, she is the keeper of the flame. She has been, you know, the manager of the music. And and, Uh, Yes, so she has her own career. She's a great singer. But as you say, she's the manager of the music. And the closing line in the obituary, I think, is interesting. Or it's in the last couple paragraphs. Her aim, she told the Washington Post in 2004, was that every time they say Rodgers and Hammerstein, Cole Porter, they should think, they should say Frank Lesser. I think he belongs there. And she's absolutely right. Frank Lesser was the equal of those two. He was great. And we're going to close by playing uh, what was called the Fugue for Tin Horns, which is from Guys and Dolls, which is the greatest opening number in the history of Broadway, and as it happens, since we talked about the Derby, it's about horse racing. All right. So with that, we'll see you next week. Tamson and Dan reading the paper. <laughs> Until then, <laughs> okay. bye-bye. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can do, can do. This guy says the horse can do, if he says the horse can do, can do. Can do. I think in Valentine, cause on the morning line, the guy's got him bigger than five to nine. But make it epitaph, he wins it by a half. According to this here in the telegraph, for Paul Rivera fight, I hear his foot's all right. Of course, it all depends if he's red last night. I know it's Valentine, the morning works look fine. You know the jockey's brother's a friend of mine. And just a minute, boys, I got the feedbox noise. It says the great grandfather was Equipoise. I told you, Paul Revere, now this is no bump steer. It's from a handicapper that's real sincere. I'm picking Valentine, cause on the morning line, the guy has got him bigger than five to nine. So make it epic, half. He wins it by a half. According to this here in the telegraph. Epitaph. Valentine. Paul Revere. I got the horse. Right.